We're going to be back in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. You might want to flick back there. Let me pray, Father. As we come to these very strange words and these very strange visions that you gave to Daniel, uh, not just this week but over the coming weeks, we pray, please, that you might give us wisdom to understand what was going on, what it is that you had in store and have in store, and how we might honour you and understand and, and grow as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm wondering, have you ever thought about how strange it is that Jesus, uh, throughout his earthly ministry, uh, kept referring to himself as the Son of Man? Uh, it's weird that you talk about yourself in the third person as well. So, you know, Joe went fishing yesterday. It was really exciting. He went with the boys' club and Joe did this and Joe caught a crab and Joe ate it for dinner. I mean, that's just weird telling you all that when it happened to be me because I'm Joe and uh, it was a very tasty crab, although crabs, you don't get much meat on them, especially when you share between five people. But anyway, it was very strange to talk about yourself in the third person. But it's even stranger you know, when we hear Jesus saying that kind of thing and, and with Christmas in the air, it should strike us as particularly odd that he called himself the Son of Man because one of the principal things about the Christmas message is that Jesus didn't have an earthly father. So he didn't, wasn't the son of a man at all. Uh, he was the son of God come to earth. He was born of a woman, but he was God's son. And so what, what was he talking about? Um, uh, he could have just been calling himself a human, like when uh, God calls the prophet Ezekiel the son of man. He says, son of man, I will speak to you my words, to Ezekiel. Uh, what he's saying is, little human, shut up, sit down, I'm God and I'm talking to you. Uh, is that what Jesus means? But very weird uh, that Jesus keeps referring to himself this way. And it, it might be that that's all Jesus means, that he's just a human, Except for Daniel 7. Daniel 7, which tells us that we should have, well, tells Daniel and everyone after that they should have been looking out for one like a son of man. Who is he? What does he do? What is he about? Here is the prophecy of the son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven. Now, Daniel 7 marks a dramatic shift in the book of Daniel. Up till now, it's been the story of Daniel and his friends who have been slaves. They're in captivity in Babylon and how, how God stood by them and rescued them again and again as they, they stood firm in their faith. They trusted God. They did the right thing even when there were uh, laws against what they did, against praying and uh, they were to bow down and worship idols. They were to pray to the king and they just refused to do that as obedient, godly men. And they stood firm, they opposed the decrees of the king and God saved them again in dramatic ways. And that's been the story so far. And we've seen just how true Daniel's prayer in chapter 2, right near the start of the book, uh, has been. When Daniel prayed, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his, he changes times and seasons, he sets up kings and he deposes them. And really what we've seen is that happening again and again. Nebuchadnezzar. The king who ruled the world was brought to his knees with madness, but then restored by God. Belshazzar, his grandson, was destroyed altogether by God at that drunken feast we saw two weeks ago. Darius the Mede quickly learned in the last chapter how mighty Yahweh, the God of Israel, uh, really is as he saved Daniel from the lion's den, perhaps the most memorable and famous part of this book. 
But then from chapter 7 onwards, it's no longer the story of Daniel's life in captivity. Instead, it's a series of visions that God gave to Daniel. And as it turns out, they happened some years before during some of these other events or during the reigns of these kings. And they occurred at different times. Uh, But it's really interesting that instead of interspersing them in the text as they happen between the different events, all of the visions are grouped together as the second half of the book. They're all in chronological order, in, in order that the visions happen, but we're basically taking a 17-year-old step back in time, back to back a few chapters. What God showed to Daniel personally. Up until now in the book, all we've known is that he is the go-to dream interpreter. When kings have visions and things happen, he's the the man to solve the problem. Uh, But now we find out that he's had visions too, prophetic visions, and some of them are pretty weird. Uh, If you didn't think that one was weird enough to start with, they're going to get even stranger uh, as we go through it in January. Uh, And so most people give up on the book of Daniel at this point. We've had the good example of the hero of faith, standing up for for God against opposition despite the death penalty, Uh, but God saved them. Let's leave it at that. That's good enough rather than try and do the hard work of understanding all the weird stuff at the end which are to do with God's plans and purposes. But on the other hand, there are many from the weirder end of Christianity who couldn't care less about the first half. You know, they'll say, dare to be a Daniel, yay. Uh, But they'll spend their hours and weeks and years poring over this prophecy part uh, in the second half because they're convinced it's about current affairs in their world today, that this was written for the 21st century. And books are being published left, right and centre about how this bit is being fulfilled in what's happening over in Israel or in Europe or in wherever, and we'll cover some of them as we go on later. I'll, I'll give you some examples. And so, you know, if we don't want to be lumped with the kooks and the weirdos, uh, shouldn't we just stop now and say, we've, we've had a good run in Daniel, uh, let's, uh, let's get on the Christmas stuff. <laughs> uh, why does God give weird stuff like this, visions of beasts and goats and other strange things that are going to turn up? Do we ever need it? Well, of course we need it. It's God's word to us. Uh, and we need it because here is the stuff that so much of the New Testament bases itself upon. You think about Daniel on the lion's den, most famous part, the bit we all know from Sunday school days and, and scripture and so on, hardly ever mentioned again in the Bible. It's got one vague reference, which Dave read out last week from Hebrews 11, and you're only pretty certain it's talking about Daniel. Whereas Daniel chapter 7, I think, is the most referred to chapter of the Old Testament in the New. It's The imagery and bits and pieces from here are quoted over and over again throughout the book of Revelation, uh, in Paul's letters, and Jesus keeps referring to himself as this character here, the Son of Man, the one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And so we've really got to come to grips with this. This is, this is why he called himself the Son of Man. This is pretty critical stuff. Indeed, God gave these visions not just to Daniel, but he gave them for us. So Daniel kept it private for 17 years or so, as we'll find out. But in the end, he wrote it down because it's a message to us that we might be wise and we might gain the comfort of the truth that God really is in control. See, 
We've heard that God's in control over and over again in the story so far. But yeah, God's not just in control in saving certain heroes of faith in difficult situations from time to time, like he did with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but God's got the whole future mapped out. And that's what we're hit today. And that's this prophecy which begins here and goes through to the end of the book in chapter 12 is a series of four visions of the future which sweep all the way from the life of Daniel right through to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it covers some of the great epochs of human history in between. But it all begins here in chapter 7. And for Daniel and the Israelites in captivity, this is a great comfort. For what these visions are saying, if anything else, is that God is not done with his people. God's got a future for them. They, uh, though they're living as exiles with idol worship and temperamental kings and backbiting officials and puzzling dreams and difficult problems and constant death threats, and it all reached its height in the reign of Belshazzar, the violent drunken king whose writing was written on the wall that we saw two chapters ago. And they may well have asked the question, has God abandoned us? Has he left us? Have we just got lucky so far that we're even here still at all? But right back in the first year of Belshazzar's horrible reign, amid the uncertainty, God gave Daniel a vision. Well, more of a nightmare really, that had him waking up in cold sweats at night. Tossing and turning, this horrible dream went through his head. See there, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. Now we've already seen Belshazzar's death and we've seen this subsequent reign of King Darius and so on, so we're going back years now. But let's just recap, and I'm going to read through the whole vision again. It's a vision concerning four great beasts climbing out of a raging sea amidst a terrible storm. And each beast comes in turn, a winged lion. It's got the wings of an eagle, but its wings are torn off and it's made to walk and it's given a heart of a man. But then there's a lopsided bear. It's kind of raised up on one side. I take it it's kind of hunched over like this. Uh, and it's got human bones sticking out from between its teeth and it's told to go eat its fill of flesh. And then there's a four-headed winged leopard, which I'm pretty sure they couldn't bear to translate it uh, as it is because it would look too funny. Um, its wings are the wings of a chicken. There you go. It's a leopard with chicken wings, uh, uh, which is pretty strange. Uh, um, a four-headed chicken-winged leopard. Uh, Odd-looking, but it's pretty scary. It's given authority to rule. And a fourth beast that's so terrifying that he cannot even describe what kind of animal it was like. All he can say is it was terrifying, frightening and powerful. It was covered in horns and yelling terrible words of blasphemy and violence and abuse. And then the little horn, in a very strange moment, it kind of delves in deeper on this, this fourth beast. This little horn grows amidst the ten horns and displaces three of them. And there are other details, but in the end, while the little horn is yelling its boastful words, 
God, the Ancient of Days, takes his throne. With fire all around, the judgment books are opened and one like a son of man comes on the clouds and is given authority, dominion, power uh, and his dominion is eternal. Unlike the beasts, he and his kingdom can never be destroyed. Does that sound like your typical dreams? Um, nope. Uh, nope. My typical dreams are of uh, bigger fish than what we caught yesterday at Boys Club outing kind of thing, you know. Uh, caught two fish that were this big. Well, anyway, someone told me that last one. <laughs> uh, the first fish caught yesterday was three centimetres long. There you go, by uh, one of the boys. <coughs> this is a weird dream, right? And uh, Daniel, uh, sorry, where are we? Um, and if this was the first thing that we'd read of Daniel, I think we'd be tempted to think, buddy, you need some special help. There's some men in white coats. Uh, they, they'll, they'll look after you. They're just coming right now. But we know that Daniel's a hero of faith, that he's God's man at the moment. We know that he's been given by God an incredible gift of dream interpretation which has been used again and again not only to save his own life but the lives of his buddies and also the lives of the wise men and astrologers, the ones who hate his guts and want him dead. He saved them through this special gift from God. But then even further, if we've got our Daniel reading glasses on, we'd recall that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a similar vision as this, as many as 40 years before that Daniel had come and interpreted for him. A vision of a, of a giant statue reaching up into the sky with a, with a golden head, with a silver torso of bronze hips and waist uh, and thighs and iron legs and its feet mixed of iron and clay and then uh, in that dream, this uh, gigantic stone cut from a mountain but not by human hands comes and, and destroys the whole thing, just smashes it all apart. Four parts of the statue, four beasts ravaging the earth, all destroyed. And in both cases, Daniel, uh, sorry, yeah, Daniel has revealed to him by God that this vision, or both visions, are about the kingdoms of this earth, how they come and how they go. Four mighty empires that will ravage the world. And yet it seems that Daniel himself couldn't remember the connection when he has his dream. And so he asks someone from his vision, one of those gathered around the throne, there, there's this mighty throng gathered around the throne of the Ancient of Days, and he so what's going on here? Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. And Daniel, perhaps recalling God's words through him to Nebuchadnezzar all those years before, just accepts that explanation with no dramas. Oh yeah, four kingdoms, great. Yeah, that's, that's like what we had. <laughs> But it's the fourth beast that particularly troubles him and the issue with the ten horns and then the little horn with the eyes on it and its boastful mouth. And I guess he's anxious because of the detail and how it differs so much from the other beasts, uh, more details given and because it's so terrifying to him. 
uh, as the beast went about devouring and trampling everything and everyone in its way. And he really, really wanted to know what the little horn was, the one with the eyes and the mouth and, and the one that destroyed the other horns. And he's told the answer to that in verse 23. Have a look. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High, out of press his saints, and try to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Ten kings from this new kingdom, and then another king more uh, powerful and more brutal than, brutal than the rest whose boastful words are spoken against God Most High, defying God himself, setting himself up in opposition to God's authority and in defiance of his justice, making war on God's people and oppressing them tremendously. But notice the time's cut short. It's only for a short while. Um, time, times and half a time. And that's a phrase that's going to get constantly quoted later uh, in the Bible. It's recycled, particularly in the book of Revelation. Time, times, and half a time. Or sometimes it's referred to as three and a half years because that's what the time is a year and the times is two more and a half. So it's three and a half years gets quoted a lot in, in Revelation. <laughs> also, 1260 days, which is three and a half years or time, times, and half time. Or you also read about 42 months, which is also time, times, and half a time. They, those phrases keep coming up again and again through the Bible and this is the start of it. <coughs> Three and a half years. Not, not very long in the scheme of things, but dreadfully long for those undergoing incredible suffering. But it's cut short. God is not going to let it go on forever. So verse 26, the court will sit, his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him, not, not the beast, not the little horn, but the Son of Man. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale and I kept the matter to myself. For 17 years he kept the matter to himself. And you might wonder, why is Daniel so pale and horror-struck when when really this is about victory, victory for God's people and God's king. And I take it because, like us so often, Daniel had failed to understand prior to this just how full and terrifying the wrath of God is when it's vented on his enemies. How awesome this God is that he will call every nation on earth to account and call all people to bow before him and this son of man. How awesome is God that he will call them to lay down arms and worship him alone and they'll do it. What God is this with such power and might and vengeance? No wonder he's pale. Here is the awful day of vengeance on God's enemies. Sure, it grants peace and victory to his people but displays Majestic greatness like never before. It's a haunting vision. 
of terrible kingdoms and in the violent wrath of God. This is how the world will go from Daniel's time on. Four terrifyingly powerful kingdoms followed by this judgment day. Now, I think the question we're all thinking is, so who's the little horn? <laughs> who's this fourth beast? Well, you know, that's, that's really what we want to know, isn't it? Because um, we've kind of worked out that the Son of Man is Jesus somehow. But uh, yeah, who, who is it? You know, who, who is it who's, who's the enemy whose rise, reign and ruin are foretold? When's it going to happen? Uh, has it happened? And which four kingdoms are the beast representing? Is it you know, uh, Indonesia, China, New Zealand and Tasmania? You know, is that... Is that that would be a ter- that would be a little beast anyway. <laughs> are they kingdoms past? Are they kingdoms that are around at the moment? Are they kingdoms that are yet to arise? And there are those who are convinced that uh, the fourth beast, in fact, all the beasts, are all about current affairs. The fourth beast, in particular, this is the, is the UN. The UN is the fourth beast. It's a beast unlike all the other beasts. They are kingdoms that rise and take over and stuff. But this is a one-world government. See that the fourth beast is explicitly different to the other kingdoms represented by the other beasts because it devours the whole earth. There are others that say that the G20 and the G8 summits and things are um, just sort of the world working together. It's all in in coalition and in, in, in partnership with the UN and and what's going to come out of this is one world government. There are to say it's talking about the EU, okay, and the merger of Europe together, all the kingdoms coming together, which has a ruling council, which a tenth member state has just joined the ruling council in 2011. Switzerland is number ten, and so all we're waiting for now is Little Horn. Who is it going to be? Current favourite, Obama. Justin Bieber is somehow implicated as well, as I watched yesterday. I'm not quite sure how that works. But anyway, uh, this is serious stuff. I mean, they, people are dead set serious, and, and you, the bookstore, the Christian bookstores are filled with, with this kind of stuff. There are movies dramatising how it's all panning out now. Uh, I mean, the books like Left Behind and the movies made on it are not that specific, but they're, they're kind of saying it's there. Uh, a book came out in the late 60s called The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, by Hal Lindsey. Uh, he has still got his own show explaining how this news story is this part of the prophecy. Um, watched a bunch of them yesterday. It was kind of fun. Uh, and the UN being the beast is, is pretty standard teaching at the moment. Uh, it's, it's the standard line amongst evangelicals, particularly in North America. Uh, and it's becoming increasingly popular in Australia through the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, which is heavily based on American Christianity. Uh, and it's pretty scary stuff. And they say that if we can pinpoint exactly who this is or which nation this is that it's talking about, the who the beast is, who the horn is, that we'll be able to know exactly when Jesus Christ is going to return and the time for the great tribulation of God's people, worse than any time in human history, that Christians will suffer. And it'll all be done in the name of unity and peace as the world gives all of its power to this one world government. And we know it'll only be three and a half years from when this leader takes power to when Jesus comes back.
But I fear that this kind of speculation, A, fails to read Daniel properly, B, completely misses the point of Daniel's prophetic vision, and worse, C, utterly fails to appreciate the absolute monumental cataclysmic centrality of what was happening in the death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what this prophecy foretells. Let me tease those things out. See, in locating the fulfilment of these beasts in current affairs, and particularly in the UN, there's a massive failure to read Daniel properly where these kingdoms are pretty comprehensively explained to us. It's not speculative who they are. For instance, I've already pointed out that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are linked, but we were told in chapter 2 who the first kingdom is. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar to his face, after his vision of the statue, you, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind's and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Or I take it in the case of Daniel 7, you are the first beast. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And it's easy to go through the chapters to see in chapter 5, for instance, therefore, who the second kingdom is, the second beast. Because Belshazzar, king of Babylon, is cut down and his kingdom is given on a platter to the Medes and Persians. They are the second kingdom. Now, they didn't have a majesty and power and authority as great as Babylon ever had. Uh, They were pretty powerful and they took Babylon out, but they never had the same extent. And then chapter 8, 10 and 11 which are weird, and lucky Dave preaching on that in January, uh, uh, they, they talk in detail and explicitly about Greece who is coming. Greece is going to rise up as a major power and they're all thinking, Greece is just backwards. It's not even got the philosophers and things yet. It's just this nothing country miles away. But it's going to rise and it's going to oppose the Persians and the Medes. And they will go to war and Greece is going to win. So speculative and it panned out in history just like that. Greece under Alexander the Great took all the nations belonging to Persia and more as he set out on world conquest and in six years he took everything from Greece to the far side of India. Wiped it out. Now there's some disagreement about who the fourth kingdom is, the fourth beast. Um, Some would suggest that the fourth kingdom was that of the Seleucids, who were one of the four ruling factions, and it's surprising because there's four heads of the leopard, four ruling factions after Greece disintegrated. Uh, and they, the Seleucids held the lands from Turkey down through Israel. Uh, and they take the little horn to be Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of the rulers, uh, because he hated Judaism with a passion and he desecrated the temple by having pig's blood sprayed around the inside, which is just an abomination, right, to to the Israelites. To have anyone walk into the temple 
and having unclean animal blood sprayed around, just it just we can't worship there. He had he forbade the Sabbath. He had um, temple sacrifice and circumcision outlawed, and he did terribly wicked things, uh, horrible, horrible things, uh, to publicly disgrace and destroy any who forbade him. He had pregnant women thrown off um, the, the walls of the city and all sorts of other horrible stuff. He's the fourth horn. Well, I think there's some pretty strong problems with that view. Uh, the Seleucids were never a major world empire. They were just one of the the factions and they came and went in power. Um, they were a faction of Greece in civil war with the other groups, particularly the Ptolemies who ruled uh, Egypt and other lands to the south. So I take it that the fourth beast is the Roman Empire, who were like an empire like none before, because they not only took the world, but they held it. For hundreds of years, thousands of years, Rome ruled the world. Uh, and while the Dark Ages saw the power of Rome wane, does anyone know when the Holy Roman Empire was officially dissolved? Uh, later than that, 1806. 1806 was the end of Rome. Now, Rome hadn't been run from Rome for years. It had been run from Germany. And just as an aside, the Third Reich was an attempt to re-establish the Holy Roman Empire run from Germany again because um, that's what it had been run for some hundred ye- hundreds of years. Uh, but having said that, I'm not sure who you would call the little horn. Um, John Calvin said it was Julius Caesar. He was like, a, he, I mean, the first Caesar and he, uh, he called himself a god uh, and he called everyone to worship him as a god uh, and he was like none of the rulers of Rome before. Uh, my guess, if I had to take a stab, would be Caligula, who was wandered into the temple in about 40 AD and he desecrated it by setting up a statue to himself in the middle of the sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a sticking it to God. You, know, you worship me, not Yahweh. Um, or maybe Nero, who had Jerusalem you know, destroyed and the Christians thrown to the lions and so on. Yeah. But in any case, Daniel's prophesying real kingdoms and real epochs of human history taking us into the reign of Rome at the height of whose power Jesus, God the Son, arrived on earth as a human being. And so those who want to look for these beasts to be uh, fulfilled in modern times just haven't read the book of Daniel properly. But they've also missed the point of Daniel's prophetic vision. That though these kingdoms are coming uh, from Daniel's time on and though God's people, Israel, is going to be battered and bruised and oppressed for what would seem to be forever and they'll be, they would seem to be doomed to failure and captivity and abuse, God was going to do something about it. Just hold on, my people. Keep trusting me. Yes, one will come worse than the other and it will look like it's, it's all over. But God's going to win. None of these kingdoms is going to last. They're each going to be stripped of power and turn. And finally, God will take his place on the judgment scene and give all power and authority and dominion to one like a son of man. And so here is the final failure of those looking to put Daniel in the modern news stories. They completely fail to appreciate the absolute monumental centrality of what was happening in the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus 
which blow the kingdoms, powers and governments of this world to smithereens and guarantee for us the lessons of Daniel that God wins. See, what is this vision in the end about? It's not really about the beasts. It's about God on his throne and this son of man. See, having heard the blasphemous and offensive words of the fourth beast and the little horn, verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words. The horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Have a look at that again. I want to point out something very odd. Verse 13. Son of Man, pictured coming with the clouds of heaven. But where is he coming to? Where's he, where's he going? He's coming somewhere. He's not coming to earth. This is not about the second coming of Jesus, which is true and important and will be talked about later in the book and in the New Testament over and over again and you should expect it. It's like a thief in the night. You will not know the day when it happened. It will just happen. This is not a prophecy of that. See, uh, it's very real and important thing. The judgments of God will finally be manifest. But this is something more important. This is when the judgment begins and the Son of Man's eternal kingdom is established because where is the one like a Son of Man coming? He is coming to the Ancient of Days. He's not going from the Ancient of Days to earth. He's coming to the Ancient of Days to receive authority. He's not coming from earth to heaven. He's coming from he uh, sorry, he's coming not from heaven to earth, but from earth to heaven. This is the victory of Christ in his resurrection and ascension. See, where is Jesus Christ proclaimed the king? Where is his reign established? Where are his enemies defeated? Where is all that stands opposed to God's people dealt with and destroyed and done away with? Where was Satan himself defeated? On the cross. That's where he won. As he triumphed over the powers and dominions. As he triumphed over the law which stood against us. As he triumphed over Satan. 
And so as the victor, as the king, as the champion, he arose defeating death and ascended into heaven and was hidden by the clouds as he took up his throne and established his kingdom. That is when and where he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every tongue now come to worship him. This isn't for the Jews only. This is for anyone and everyone. And so in the end, in heaven will be people from every background and culture and tribe and tongue and nation. But it all starts then. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And it's already started. It's already occurred because he has approached God and he has received it all. He will return, and Daniel 12 will talk about that day, but the beasts of this world have already encountered their doom. There is no kingdom that can overthrow God and his rule or Jesus the Son. That is why Jesus kept referring to himself as the Son of Man. He was talking about this chapter. He is the one who holds the key to the defeat of evil. He holds the key to the kingdom of God. He holds the key to life and death and judgment and eternity. And so he will say in John chapter 5, I tell you the truth, a time is coming but has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do you know where you stand before this judge? Are you one of the throngs who are there to worship and praise the one, God become man, now the king of everything? Or are you caught up with the kingdoms of this world and are going to be destroyed? The beasts are gone. He is the one whose kingdom and power and dominion extend over all and he will destroy all his enemies. If you're not part of his kingdom, sort it out. No better time than Christmas time to sort things out with Jesus. This is where we remember that he's come and what he's come to do and that he is the king. Sort it out. Well, we thank you for this prophetic message that you gave to Daniel that though the kingdoms of this world will rage against you and conspire and do evil things, you win. We thank you that Jesus is the victory and that he has won it already. It has been established and now he is calling people from every tribe, tongue, language to come and receive forgiveness of life and mercy, hope. We do pray that each one of us will be found in his kingdom Trusting the Lord Jesus because it doesn't rely on us, it relies on him. We thank you that his blood has paid for us. We pray for those we know and love who do not know you. Please forgive them. Please have mercy. We pray for those we are yet to meet, the, the people moving into the community. Father, we pray that we might shine as a light to this dark world and we might show in the way we live, who we belong to, that we might proclaim his greatness, that we might call people to repentance and faith. We pray for tonight for the carols, that it's a spectacular night, not just fun, but a, a real moment where we can connect with people and help them to know the Lord Jesus and become his. Father, we pray for our follow-up and outreach and other things that we're doing. We thank you for the, the blessings of, of youth group the last few weeks and boys club and the growing numbers of children and youth that we've been able to reach out to. We pray, please, that you would save them. 
Please help us as we stand for you in this world. Help us to know that in Jesus is the victory, that he is one, for he has received his kingdom already. And we wait for his coming again to show that to everyone and to bring it all to completion. I pray in his name. Amen.